uh, we've been in the book of Exodus, and we've seen Moses delivered by Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's been raised up to be Yahweh's deliverer for the children of Israel. As it always is for God's deliverer, he is first rejected by his brothers and exiled in the wilderness, but he is matured through suffering. God speaks to Moses from the fire atop the mountain and gives him his mission to return to Egypt, to deliver the sons of Israel from Pharaoh's oppression and bring them to that same mountain to worship their God. Now, this morning, we will cover material from Exodus chapters 5 through 10 as Moses and Aaron bring God's demands to Pharaoh. And what we're going to see is Moses is acting as a prophet, the prototypical prophet. He is one who speaks for God and who intercedes for the life of the world. We'll see Moses interceding for the life of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And we will also see Yahweh going to battle with Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt. This is the war of the gods. We will also see Yahweh decreate the world of Egypt, systematically tearing down the pillars of the house of Pharaoh in order to establish his own house in the midst of the sons of Israel. As we do this, let me pray for our time in the word. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who gave Moses and Aaron words to speak to Pharaoh, to proclaim your sovereign majesty over all kingdoms and creatures and elements, Would you speak through your word again this morning, that we might come to serve you and worship you as the only true God? We ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, we didn't cover the end of chapter 4 last week. We're not going to get into it too much here. But there, Yahweh sends Aaron, Moses' brother, to help him in his mission. He also gives Moses three miraculous signs to perform to authenticate his divine call. We'll see one of those today. And Moses and Aaron return to the elders of Israel and they tell them all that has happened. So now in chapter 5 of Exodus, it begins with Moses and Aaron's first audience with Pharaoh. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. So when Pharaoh hears Yahweh's command, he replies, who's Yahweh? Now, it's hard to imagine that Pharaoh did not know about the God of the Hebrews, who have been living in his land for many years now. And certainly, Pharaoh already worshipped a whole pantheon of deities, so there's nothing that would prevent him from adding another god to his list and and appeasing his slaves. But instead, he mocks the Hebrews and their God. He scoffs at Yahweh's request. The Hebrews fear Yahweh. They know that if he is scorned, he will fall upon them, they say, with pestilence or with the sword. 
But Pharaoh does not fear Yahweh. Pharaoh does scorn Yahweh. And what will happen to him? Yahweh is about to fall upon him with both pestilence and the sword. Verse 4, But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. You see, Pharaoh thinks it's a bad thing to give his subjects rest. But Yahweh is the God of rest, the God of the Sabbath. And in the law that he will give to his newly freed people, rest and Sabbath will be enshrined as one of the highest values of his kingdom. This, we should see, is in opposition to earthly rulers like Pharaoh who burden their people and who work them to death. Yahweh brings rest. And God demands that his people be given rest here. He is calling them out into the wilderness, not just to get away from Egypt, but for festival, for worship. He is calling them to find rest. Pharaoh demands that they work harder. And ironically, this Hebrew word is the same that will be used to describe the hardness of Pharaoh's heart throughout Exodus. His hardness of heart causes him to punish the people with hard labor. But his hardness of heart will end up bringing hard judgment down upon him. The four men of Israel hear of Pharaoh's demands and they see that they are in big trouble. They're not going to be able to meet their quotas because he won't give them straw. And so they're beaten for it. And they cry to Pharaoh about this. But Pharaoh says... If you have time to go picnic out in the wilderness with your God, you must have a lot of free time on your hands. So get to work. Verse 22. Then Moses turned to Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. Verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am Yahweh. Now, if you uh, know literary structures, this is a nice little chiasm here, and at the very middle of it is this promise that God will bring out the Israelites through great acts of judgment. And so here God prophesies the rest of the Exodus. He will deliver Israel from Egyptian oppression. He will do it through great acts of judgment. And these are the plagues of which we will speak shortly. But why? Why does God go to all this trouble? What is the purpose of the Exodus according to Yahweh? That the people of Israel would be 
God's people and that God would be their God. This is about his covenant, his promise to Israel. And that they, Israel, would know that this is Yahweh their God, the God who brings them out of Egypt. And we'll see as we go along, he is also doing this so that the Egyptians will know that. And so that all the surrounding nations will know that. And so the world will know that he is the God who delivers his people. In other words, this exodus will define who Yahweh is. And it will define who his people are. He is the God who delivers. And his people are the people who have been delivered. Yahweh will do this in order to keep covenant with their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to keep his promise to bring them to the land and establish them there. This is who Yahweh is. He is the covenant-keeping God who delivers his people from their oppressors. And when you hear the name Yahweh, or you're in your Bible's Lord in capital letters, That is what you should think of. Verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. This will become a characteristic trait for this Exodus generation. Indeed, not listening to God's prophet will be a common characteristic of Israel from now on. God will send his prophets, but his people will not listen to them. Now, having been rejected by Pharaoh once already and now being rejected by the ones he came to save, Moses is skeptical that anyone will listen to him. And so chapter 7 begins with God's reassurance of Moses. Chapter 7, verse 1. And Yahweh said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So just as God speaks Through his prophet Moses, so Moses will speak through his brother Aaron. God continues, verse 2, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Spoiler alert, right? God tells Moses exactly how this whole thing is going to go. How would you like to receive that vocation? Yeah, so uh, you're going to keep coming before this guy, and you're going to keep saying the same thing over and over again, and and I'm just going to tell you right now, he's never going to listen to you. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Would you like that job? But... This, too, will become the standard call for God's prophets. When God calls Isaiah to his prophetic task, he tells them, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And Jesus quotes that same passage to describe his own ministry and his reception in Israel. God calls his prophets not always to clarify and to enlighten, but often to confound and to harden the people further in their sin. He calls them to a lifetime of rejection. Why? Because it shows that man cannot, will not deliver himself. 
the flesh is weak. And left to our own devices and desires, we will reject God every time. God then calls Moses and Aaron to prove themselves to Pharaoh by working a miracle. And Aaron casts his staff down, and it turns into a serpent. But then Pharaoh's magicians do the same with their staffs. Still, Aaron's staff swallows up their staffs. If you've ever seen Egyptian sarcophagi, you know how prominent the image of the serpent was in their culture. Uh, You think of Pharaoh's cobra-shaped headdress. You think of their snake-shaped staffs. Serpents were signs of Egyptian power and authority. So even though Pharaoh's magicians are somehow able to copy Aaron's miracle, the fact that his serpent consumes theirs shows that in this battle of the gods that we're about to see between Yahweh and Pharaoh, the bigger batter snake is Yahweh. Now, it's telling, too, that the Hebrew word for swallow that's used here is only used in Exodus twice. And the other place it appears is 1512, when the sea swallows the Egyptian army. 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. All right, so Yahweh tells Moses to go to Pharaoh the next morning to take that staff and strike the water in the Nile. And when he does, the Nile is turned to blood, as well as its tributaries and pools and even the water in the vessels of wood and stone. This is the first of ten plagues that Yahweh will bring down upon Egypt. Why do you think God chose this for the first of his mighty deeds? Well, the Nile is the source of life for Egypt. The regular flooding of the Nile Delta gave Egypt its rich and fertile soil, making it the breadbasket of the whole region. The Nile itself was worshipped as a god in Egypt. But now, the lifeblood of Egypt is literally turned to blood. The fish die. The water cannot be drunk. What we'll see is that these plagues are not arbitrary. Yahweh is going to war with the gods of Egypt. He is showing that they are no gods, that he is sovereign over their territory, their dominion. It is a war of the gods, and Yahweh will emerge victorious. This first plague also foreshadows Yahweh's final judgment on Egypt, the death of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, another body of water, that will be turned to blood. Thus, the exodus is framed by these two similar events. Verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same. By their secret arts, they turned the water to blood. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. We skip to chapter 8. There Yahweh sends the second plague on Egypt, the plague of frogs. Frogs, frogs everywhere. In their houses, in their bedrooms, even in their ovens, in their bread bowls. I mean, you can only eat frog legs for so long before it gets old, right? Here we see another major theme of these plagues, and it's what I'll call decreation. Okay, so within the the story about all these plagues, there are all kinds of allusions to Genesis 1, the creation account. 
And what we see is that just as Yahweh created a world in Genesis 1, in the plagues we are seeing a reversal of that creation, a decreation of the world of Egypt, the kingdom of Egypt. So at the creation of the world, God gave man dominion over creatures that swarm. Here, creation is undone. The frogs are said to swarm all over the Egyptians' houses. Instead of man having dominion over the animals, the swarms, the swarms are now having dominion in the Egyptians' homes. This also plays into the theme of the War of the Gods. The Egyptian goddess of childbirth, Heket, was depicted in Egyptian art as a woman with a frog head. You think, well, that's kind of weird. <laughs> it's because when the Nile was flooded, was inundated, millions of frogs would be born. And so there was this association between the coming of all these frogs and the fertility of the flooded land. And so this plague shows Yahweh has power over Heket. And thus, Yahweh holds the life, the life of Egypt in his hand. Verse 8, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to Yahweh about the frogs, 13, and Yahweh did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out. Verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. This is the first sign of weakness from Pharaoh. He has to plead with Moses to take away the frogs. His magicians could recreate the plague, but apparently they couldn't take it away. And that's something to note here. Throughout these plagues, God's power to remove the plague is just as impressive as his power to send it. Yahweh is the beginning and the end. It says, Moses cried to Yahweh about the frogs. This is what prophets do, and we've talked about this many times. They pray for people, and God listens to his prophet, and he relents. We see that over and over again in Scripture with Abraham, with Moses, with Jesus. But Pharaoh hardens his heart once again. The third plague is gnats. Aaron strikes the dust with his staff, and gnats fill the land of Egypt, covering both man and beast. Again, the swarms are taking dominion over man. Egypt is being decreated, uncreated. Now, Pharaoh's magicians cannot reproduce this plague, and even they begin to fear this mighty God of the Hebrews. They say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, that finger of God phrase is picked up in our gospel reading for today. Luke eleven eighteen verse 20, uh, Luke 11, verse 20, Jesus says, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he goes on to talk about the strong man. So just as the finger of God came to tear down the house of Pharaoh in the Exodus, so the finger of God came, down, came to tear down the house of Satan during the ministry of Jesus. He is the stronger man come to set the captives of the strong man free. The fourth plague is another swarm, this time flies. To no one's surprise, Pharaoh hardens his heart again and does not let the people go. The fifth plague is described in Exodus 9. This plague falls on the livestock of Egypt, 
And again, we see the war of the gods theme. The Egyptian mother and sky goddess was Hathor, and she was depicted as a cow. She now falls to the hand of Yahweh too. This plague also shows the decreation motif as well. At the original creation, God gave animals to man for his dominion. Now God takes the animals away from the Egyptians, decreating their world. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. For the sixth plague, God commands Moses to take soot from the kiln and throw it into the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It becomes dust over all the land of Egypt and becomes boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. Even Pharaoh's magicians are struck by the boils as God shows greater and greater power over the wisdom and might of Egypt. Verse 12, But Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as Yahweh had spoken to Moses. Now, this is the first time that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is specifically attributed to Yahweh before it's been Pharaoh hardening his heart. But here we're told that Yahweh hardened his heart. And so these uh, these stories, these texts often bring up questions about God's sovereignty and human free will. Did Pharaoh harden his own heart or did God harden it or is it both? The Bible seems content to present both as true without reconciling what seems paradoxical to us. And the Bible does this throughout. The Bible consistently presents God as sovereign over the hearts and wills of men. And yet it also holds human beings responsible for their actions and for their choices. And we should hold both truths together as well. Now, because of the Bible's fondness for the number seven, which we've talked about a lot, we might expect this seventh plague to be significant. And God does highlight it in a unique way by using this as an opportunity to describe his purpose behind these plagues. So chapter nine, verse 13. Then Yahweh said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on yourself, literally to your heart, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, Pharaoh thinks that he is the great world power, that he has been raised up for his own glory. But Yahweh says he has raised up Pharaoh, and he's raised him up for this very moment, for these plagues, that the glory of Yahweh over the kings of the earth might be put on display. So that all the earth will know Israel's God is the true and only world power. And what is this seventh plague? Verse 23. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and Yahweh sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree 
of the field. So we have hail and thunder and lightning. These are things particularly associated with God's presence and power. Later, when we get back to Sinai, Israel will see God's presence and there will be thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. It says there was fire in the midst of the hail. This reminds us of the fire that burned in the midst of the burning bush, which was also a manifestation of the presence of Yahweh. So the hail and the storms are portraying Yahweh come to judge Egypt. And so this is also part of Yahweh's war with the gods of Egypt. The Egyptian god Seth manifested himself in the wind and the storms. Here, Yahweh is shown to be the true Lord of storms. This is also a decreation event. The text says every plant is struck down. The same word used in Genesis 1.11 when God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. God is decreating the world the, the Egyptians rely upon. The yearly cycle of planting and harvest has been brought to a halt. So Pharaoh calls for Moses and the prophet intercedes once again. But verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go. Chapter 10, plague number 8. God promises to bring more swarms on Egypt. This time, locusts. They will swarm everywhere. They will eat what little is left after the hail, every tree that grows in the field. They will fill the houses of the Egyptians. This time, Pharaoh's servants plead with him to let the Hebrews go. They say to Pharaoh, do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Even they can see that Yahweh is decreating their society. Still, Pharaoh refuses. Unlike Yahweh, Pharaoh will not relent. He will not grant rest. He will not give Sabbath even if it kills him. Verse 13. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and Yahweh brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Again, it is a decreation. The Hebrew words for grows and green plant and fruit and green, all this terminology which appears here is also found in the Genesis creation account. Whereas Yahweh gave the trees to Adam for food for his life, now Yahweh takes the trees from Egypt, leaving them with no food and thus no life. Verse 16, Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Yahweh your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with Yahweh your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with Yahweh, and Yahweh turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. 
Verse 20, but Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. There's a lot of foreshadowing of the Red Sea crossing here. Because at that time, Yahweh will also blow the east wind to cause the Red Sea to part in chapter 14, verse 21. And the west wind drives the locusts into the Red Sea, foreshadowing the drowning of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea in 1428. We're told there not a single locust was left. Again, this foreshadows Exodus 14:28. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Now, throughout the Old Testament, Gentile armies are often compared to swarms of locusts, massive hosts that come and devour the land. But that metaphor always goes back to this passage. God's people are to always remember that even the armies of the greatest empires are blown by Yahweh wherever He wishes. He can use them for His purposes, or He can drown them in the sea. On the heels of Pharaoh's refusal, the ninth plague comes without warning. Verse 21, Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. This is peak example of Yahweh's war against Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt because the Egyptians held the sun god, Re, as their highest god. The pharaohs were actually considered the son of Re. But even Re cannot withstand the might of Yahweh, the true god of light, creator of sun, moon, and stars. This is, of course, a decreation. What were God's first words in the creation of the world? Let there be light. But here God says, let there be darkness. And he plunges Egypt into darkness and void. Still, Pharaoh refuses. He threatens Moses with death if he ever sees him again. Moses does the same to him. The tenth plague and Passover, we're going to preach Uh, its own sermon on that next week. So I will not go into it here, but it too is a war on Egypt's gods. It too is a decreation of Egypt. And that's what we've seen this morning with all of these plagues. This is Yahweh going to war with Pharaoh and with the pantheon of Egypt's gods. He is unmaking the Egyptian world. A number of years ago, our family was vacationing in Branson, and we attended the Sight and Sound Theater's production of Moses. Maybe some of you have seen that one. It's a very impressive drama with big-budget special effects and, and professional actors and everything. But one thing has stuck with me. There were many scenes in Pharaoh's palace, of course, and there were these large stone pillars supporting the room. They were so realistic looking that I didn't know they were actually video projections on the set. And each pillar in Pharaoh's palace was carved with the image of one of Egypt's gods. And with each successive plague, the effects would cause one of the pillars to crack and crumble uh, in this palace. So when the frogs overran Egypt, the pillar of Heket began to crumble and crack. When the livestock was killed, the pillar of Hathor was reduced to rubble. 
When the hail fell, so did the pillar devoted to Seth, and so on until all the pillars crumbled to the ground. Now, they never pointed this imagery out in the play. It was just in the background, projected on the set. But it was a good way of making the theological point. These plagues were not random. They were not arbitrary. They're not God just showing off. Yahweh is systematically breaking down every single pillar on which the kingdom of Egypt had been built. Every false god, every idol, every beast, every crop, every cycle of nature, everything in which Egypt put its hope was methodically ripped out from under them. And finally, the very son of Egypt, the god Ray, is submitted by Yahweh and the whole Egyptian world reverted to the darkness of the void, decreated by the true God. This is what God has been doing with humanity since the fall. Because in our sin, we always put our trust in our flesh. We put our trust in idols and false gods. We put our trust in the flesh when we think we are strong enough to control the world. Strong enough to rule, strong enough to secure our own safety and prosperity. We put our trust in idols when we discover that the true God is too unpredictable for us. We replace him with false gods of money and comfort, of health, of prestige. These gods seem easier to manipulate. They do what we want them to most of the time. They fit in our boxes. It's what humans have been doing since Adam and Eve, trusting in the flesh, worshiping false gods. So the God of the Exodus has to come in and crumble those pillars. He has to come in and crush those idols. He has to come in and show the frailty of the flesh. Because if he is going to deliver us, he has to conquer our oppressors, even if our oppressors are ourselves. If he's going to bring a new creation, he has to decreate the old one. This is what God did for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus took on human flesh. He took on our weakness. He took on our sin, our rebellion and idolatry. And he bore this old world of ours on his back as he was nailed to the cross. He did this to decreate, to undo the old creation of sin and death. He did this to cut away sinful flesh. In his death, he put the old world of death to death. He buried it in the tomb. And because he gave himself for those who had rejected him, the God of the Exodus resurrected him, recreated him, if you will, as a new creation, as a new world, as a new kind of humanity glorified and now imperishable. The hearts of Israel had been hardened against him like the heart of Pharaoh, but God drowned that hard heart in the waters of death. And in Jesus, God gave his people a new beating heart, a new life. Brothers and sisters, we are invited to see that our God has heard our cries. He has come to deliver us 
in Jesus. He has waged war on our idols. He has plagued our sinful flesh. He has called us to abandon those things, to confess our sins, to turn from them, to leave the old creation in the dark. He calls us to trust that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He has called us to live as those who have been freed, as those who have been exodused by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So trust that the story of the exodus and God's war with the false gods is your story as well. God has defined himself as the God who has delivered you through Jesus Christ. You are to define yourselves as the people who have been delivered by Jesus Christ. Go out and serve your God. Let's pray. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of the Exodus, plague our false gods. Reveal the weakness of our flesh. Come and deliver us once again through the blood of your Passover lamb, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As those who have been freed from bondage, use our lives to proclaim your glory in all the earth. We ask it in his name. Amen.